What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey everyone, welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host Eric, alongside with expert analyst Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Hey everyone, it's Eric again alongside with Rod, and we're going to continue our summer conversations, and today we're going to do the what if of the 1985-1986 Michigan State Spartans, which is capped by the infamous clock game against Kansas in the Sweet 16. And I think to start the conversation, it's probably good to have a a reasonable background on what Michigan State basketball was at that time. So the 1983-84 season, of course, we're coming off the NCAA championship in 1979 with Magic Johnson. 83-84, expectations are pretty high for this Michigan State basketball team. They were a preseason top 10. They featured five players who ended up playing in the NBA, three of them having really long careers, Kevin Willis, Simmons, and Scott Skiles. And the expectation was pretty high, but the injury bug caught them to Kevin Willis and Sam Vincent, and with some other inconsistent play from other players, they just never quite came together. They ended up finishing the season 15-13, and 8-10 and 10 in the Big Ten, and made the NIT. So still no NCAA appearances since the Magic Johnson year. It was the next season, 84-85, where they made the NCAA tournament, uh, but of course they had lost some players and were, had a first-round X against UAB, which I definitely remember that season. I will confess that I was younger at this time, and so I don't think I watched many of these games, and I tell my son this, and he doesn't believe me, but you couldn't watch most games on TV. In fact, if you weren't at the game, you had to pretty much listen to it on the radio, and so I listened to a lot of Michigan State basketball on the radio, and same with football games, but fortunately, I wasn't forced to watch football games because they were really bad <laughs> in the 80s, unless I went to the, the home games. You could always watch them, I think, like in WKR. They had the replays in the uh, PBS. Uh, so then that leads us into the 19... Uh, 85-86 season, and I guess the background, what's, what was your impression? You were a little bit older than me, and so you probably remember these times a little bit more than I did, at least at the build-up to the season, which I think going to 85-86, not a whole lot of expectations because they their team, all their great players had sort of left. Right, and and you have to, I think, put the entire situation into a context. So Michigan State wins a national title in 1979, and one of the biggest what ifs in Michigan State basketball history, which I don't think we'll do an episode on because it's way too speculative, but this gets talked about for people from time to time. What would have happened if, for some reason, Irvin Johnson had decided to come back for a junior season? Because Michigan State, it appears, and I'm relying on what the players themselves have said in subsequent years, Michigan State would have been set to have a monster recruiting class that year James Worthy has said on the record repeatedly if Magic had come back for another year he would have come to Michigan State rather than North Carolina same thing for a guy named Sidney Green who was a great player at UNLV and played in the NBA as well 
Um, Michigan State was firmly in on guys like Ralph Sampson and Patrick Ewing. I don't know if they would have gotten those guys, but the first two I mentioned, they would have gotten, it appears. That would have set things up, I think, very differently for Judd Heathcote. Instead, Magic leaves, which God knows you could not blame him for, uh, because the next year, he <laughs> all he does is goes out and wins a, an NBA title as a rookie and and has perhaps the greatest game in NBA Finals history to win the title. Uh, so he certainly had done as much as he needed to do in college. It's nothing against Magic. Um, but that set Michigan State basketball back a little bit. And part of the reason was just inevitably losing a great talent. But part of it was, and this went on for the really the entirety of the 80s, Judd Heathcote was fighting a losing battle in two ways. One was, I think even he would admit, he was not a guy who loved recruiting. His general MO was always, I'm not going to ever beg anybody to come to play for me. If they show interest in Michigan State, they want to play here, great. We'd love to have them if they're good enough. But I'm not going to go out there and kowtow to teenagers, which you can admire from a human standpoint. From a basketball standpoint, it, it made things difficult. The other problem is the Big Ten was in the midst of a period where cheating was absolutely epidemic. And that's not an excuse. That's a fact. And Judd did not cheat. So consequently, that put Michigan State in a real bind with other programs like Michigan, Iowa, Illinois, Wisconsin, although they weren't very good. They got into that. Minnesota had scandals. I mean, it was about half the league. Indiana and Purdue really didn't play that game, and they were obviously very successful during that period. But all you need to do is take a look at the incredible talent the state of Michigan was producing at that time and see how much of it went out of state. Didn't go to either Michigan or Michigan State. Um, I could go chapter and verse. I mean, it was it was awful. And a lot of that was due to progress. Syracuse was a big player in this state, cheating their asses off through Dave Bing. Um, Missouri, they, they had an assistant coach, um, Rich Daly, whose nickname was Dr. Detroit because he was spreading so much money around <laughs> the city of Detroit. So anyway, all of this is to set a context. This was a very, very rough time for anybody listening who's too young to remember it. This was an awful period to be a Michigan State basketball fan because you had come off this incredible high. The guy I would argue was probably the most entertaining player in college basketball history, and he wins a national title. And then you go through this fallow period. And so for a couple of years, it was basically Jay Vincent winning Big Ten scoring titles, and that was about it for interest but they start to rebuild and get some momentum built um in it must have been i guess it was 845 4283 in 1981 they get sam vincent jay's younger brother big recruit lansing kid a lot of schools big big time programs he was like a i'm pretty sure he was like a top 20 guy nationally um, so a major, major recruit. But then Judd starts building something with 
less heralded guys. It's funny, in that era, other than Sam, the guys he got that were supposed to be big-time guys, there was a guy named Patrick Ford in the 82-83 class who was Mr. Basketball of the State from Cast Tech, was supposed to be all everything. He didn't do much in his career. Ended up transferring, I believe he finished his career at Western. Um, However, there was another guy in that class, uh, a short, pudgy, white kid from Indiana named Skiles, (laughs) who ended up being one of the greatest players in program history. So Judd hit on a few guys like that. He hit on Scott Skiles. He hit on a junior college transfer from Jackson Community College named Kevin Willis, who went on to an incredible NBA career. Um, He ended up getting a transfer from USC, a guy named Ken Johnson, who is arguably the worst shooter I've ever seen in my life, but was a monster rebounder, monster shot blocker, and did some time in the NBA. He got a guy named Daryl Johnson, who was a very good player out of Flint Central, but was an afterthought in the state behind a guy named Antoine Jobert, who went to Michigan and had all the hype around him. We'll talk, he'll come back into this story later. Uh, But all of these guys that I just mentioned ended up playing in the NBA. Some of them like Sam Vincent, Skiles and, and uh, Kevin Willis for more than 10 years or more. Um, The other two, the Johnsons got more cups of coffee, but still they made the NBA in an era when it was harder to do that than it is today because there were no two-way contracts. The league was smaller. There were fewer jobs. So um, by, by the 83, 84 season, Michigan state had a lot of talent and people recognized it. And it seemed like, all right, the good times are back. This is a team that can contend. Judd to this day maintains that team was the most talented one he had. But injuries, Kevin Willis had a foot injury. I can't remember what Sam Vincent's injury was, but that took him out Took him out of maybe seven or eight games. That team just never found its stride. Even Skiles has mentioned subsequently that the, he thought the biggest problem with that team was that its point guard, meaning himself, played with, and I quote, his head up his ass. Uh, it sounds like a so, Oh, yeah. He's very honest. So they, they never really found it. And it was it, it took a five-game winning streak to close the season for them to even get to the NIT. That's how bad it was. So it was a really big disappointment. As you mentioned, the next year they lose Willis, but they still have Ken Johnson. They still have Skiles. They still have Sam Vincent. Sam Vincent has a great year, averages 23 points a game. Ken Johnson is a rebounding and shot-blocking machine inside. Skiles has a good season. And they get back to the NCAA tournament um, only to go out in the first round to UAB. Exit Vincent, exit Ken Johnson, exit a couple of other guys. So now there's not much left. You've got Skiles back coming into the 85-86 season, who's been a good player his whole career. I think as a junior, he averaged something like 17 and change, um, shot 50% from the floor, Average uh, over five assists per game. So he had a good year and, and certainly would have been recognized as one of the better players in the Big Ten. But this wasn't a guy you looked at and said, wow, he's going to take over college basketball as an individual. You wouldn't have thought that. And then behind him, you had a bunch of guys who hadn't done a lot. Daryl Johnson had averaged less than six points a game coming off the bench the year before. Larry Pollock was a, a six eight kind of undersized four man who 
was so polarizing, there was actually an organization called SAP, Students Against Pollock. That, and those are Michigan State fans. So that's what, and then a bunch of, they got Vernon Carr, junior college transfer, wasn't particularly heralded. Um, you know, just not a lot of reason to think this was going to be a great team. And then on top of all of that, the summer before this, the 85, 86 season starts, Scott Skiles has some interactions with the law. And there was cocaine found in a gym bag after what I believe was a traffic stop. He did a stint in jail and there was a lot of pressure. I can't even imagine what it would be like today with social media, but there was a lot of pressure on Judd Heathcote to suspend him or flat out kick him off the team. And Judd refused to do it. And the reason he said he refused to do it is he believed Scott's denials and felt that ELPD, which those of us who have lived in East Lansing, have gone to Michigan State, know this. I would say, and I'm certainly not a defund the police guy by any stretch, but um, (laughs) I think if you lived in, in East Lansing, went to school at Michigan State, it is fair to say that there is at least a bit of an adversarial relationship at times between the student population and the ELPD. And that was what Judd believed was going on with Skiles. I won't bore you with all the details around that, but there was some reason to think that they were actually targeting Skiles um, in that stop, which is crazy to think about, but that, that was his belief. And there was some reason at least to think that might've been the case. So this is the background for this season. You've lost two of your three best players and your best player has just gone through serious legal problems during which he did some jail time. Welcome to the 85, 86 season. Right. And I think this is a great example. We talked about this a episode or two ago uh, about how players, they morph into something else with, when the situation changes with the yes. team, you know, there's a, there's a loss, some, you know, Sam Vincent, who was a prolific scorer, He's gone now, and now Scott Skiles is sort of the guy. He's the yep. one who has to do it. And and you never really know. Oftentimes, we, we always project what we expect someone to develop into and what role they're going to take on the next season. Sometimes they're ready for that. Sometimes they can do it, and sometimes they can't. And Skiles is a great example of a guy who was there. He's always a you know solid player, but he was, I guess, maybe in some ways, because he's forced in that leadership role, he became more of a player than he could have been had the situation been different, right? And I think it just like Cash Winston when Josh Langford goes on, Cash just becomes a player who we thought was possible, but became more than probably imagined, you know, the year it's before. It's a real it's a really good point. And it should it should also be mentioned that and those again, those listening who witnessed these seasons I'm taught we're talking about know this. The Scott Skyle Sam Vincent backcourt is arguably the most talented MSU backcourt in history. If you're talking about the two guys together, both of them had a decade long career in the NBA. They had great college seasons, their entire career. There was no buildup. I mean, even Sam Vincent was a huge success immediately. Even Skiles averaged more than 12 points a game as a freshman, but for the three years they played together, they never really fit. 
And I think it's because both of them wanted and felt they needed the ball in their hands. And there was only one ball. Um, I think in retrospect, it's Sam Vincent was not really a point guard, but he believed himself to be. And so did other people. Um, Skiles definitely was. But they just never quite gelled. And I, I never got the sense that there was like real animosity. They weren't super tight. They didn't hate each other, but they just didn't fit. They never found a, a coexistence that worked. And so once Sam Vincent exits the stage, you're absolutely right. Now there's some oxygen. Now there's some space for Skiles to occupy. And boy, does he take advantage of it. Yeah, so let's start the just recap the pre-Big Ten season. So Michigan State, again, expectations are not really high. They go 8-1 and one in the non-conference record uh, with their only loss at Iowa State for by two points. Yeah, that was not a bad loss. That was not a bad loss. Iowa State was really good then. They had um, another school that came in and cheated and got kids out of Michigan. They got Jeff Grayer from Flint Northwestern, <laughs> who was a great player. They had a guy named Tompkins from Jackson, who was really good. They were coached by former Michigan coach Johnny Orr, who was definitely, while he was at Michigan at least, was near the top of my all-time hated list. This is a guy who blew kisses at the Michigan State crowd after Michigan beat Michigan State during Magic's years. He was as obnoxious as any coach has ever been at Michigan or anywhere. But yeah, that was the only loss, and it wasn't a bad one. Is that the year? To, uh, so was Bruce Pearl at, at Iowa at that point? Is that why Iowa was cheating so he much? Was, well, that was Iowa. That this is Iowa State. Lute Olson but was yes, there? This is, right. Yeah, this I, is very, yeah, okay. I, Bruce Pearl definitely was at Iowa in the late 80s. I'm assuming he was at this point because um, this was the George Raveling era at Iowa. Lute Olson had left for Arizona, but I think he probably was. I'd have to, I'd have to double check, though. But it was... It was just yeah, rampant. Okay. Lou Henson was going crazy at Illinois. Uh, Michigan, obviously, under Freeder. It was, if anybody tries to tell you basketball <laughs> cheating started with Ed Martin at Michigan, they're out of their minds. Ed Martin wasn't even in the picture <laughs> at this point, and they were paying guys left, right, and center. Anyway. Yeah. So getting back to the season. So they're 8-1. Uh, not a bad loss at Iowa State, but nothing that was very impressive as far as the non-conference. But got off to a rough start in the Big Ten, starting off two and four, um, going into a game against Michigan. And, uh, you know, I'm going to hand this off to you because why don't you talk about the Wolverines? They were obviously Antoine Jopair. I remember him and I remember hating him. And I don't he seemed like a little easy. He, he just seemed like a guy who easy, right, easy, easy guy to hate. To hate Antoine Jopair. Yeah. <laughs> he was he was a he was a talker and he was a guy who had a lot of swagger and Michigan was I mean, I think they were in the top five going into they that were. game. So there's every re- and Michigan State was struggling. And, yeah. and, uh, and I think the other thing, the backdrop, which is not maybe important for this, but just to remind people that Michigan State, there was no three-point line at this point. This is the last season without a three-point right. line. So all these numbers you hear are without a three-point line and shooting numbers are without yeah, the three. And that, and that's, so why don't you talk about that Michigan game? I, I, that, that last bit, I'll just editorialize for a second. It's one of the reasons why this is probably my favorite Michigan State team ever to talk about because of how truly amazing some of the numbers were and the brand of offense they played. Not entirely, but largely due to Scott Skiles. He was the fulcrum around which everything happened. 
Um, but Michigan, yeah, this was the season that was the culmination of a building process for them. Michigan had gone through their own problems. They'd been really, really good in the Johnny Orr era. Actually got to a national title game in uh, 76. They were the team that Indiana beat to um, uh, win their undefeated season and that cap their undefeated season and national title. And, and, and so they were really good in the Johnny Orr era. But then during the magic years, they slipped. Orr leaves for Iowa State. Bill Frieder takes the job and gets elevated from being an assistant. And Frieder slowly builds his thing. And by this season, we're talking about Michigan was ready. They had a deep veteran team. They had Joe Bear, who I, I will digress for a second. Antoine Jobert, <laughs> when I was a freshman in high school, he was a senior. And my high school used to host uh, state quarterfinal games because we had um, a, a big gym. It could it had a capacity of 4,000. So we would get class A quarter, quarterfinal games um, regularly. And um, Jobert played at my high school. And I saw him after the game. They, they beat, I think it was, I want to say it was Kalamazoo Central, but I can't remember for sure. And after the game, because you have to remember, Antoine Jobert was being hyped as the next Magic by the Detroit media. I mean, they, they called him the judge because he said he wanted to become a lawyer. Um, <laughs> he comes out and he had a he had a jerry curl very much like he looked like Prince. He looked like a basketball playing jumbo sized Prince. He had on a I, I can see it as clear as day. Had on a nearly full length fur coat. This is a high school kid coming out and acting truly as if he's royalty with kids asking for an autograph. I'd never seen anything like it. And I had gone to the game because of all this hype thinking, wow, I'm be able to tell my kids I saw Antoine Jobert in high school. Like my dad saw Kareem in high school. Um, let's just say after that game, I was not disappointed that Michigan state wasn't getting him. He took a boatload of shots. He went something like, 11 for 25 from the floor worse than that even he was well under 50 percent no conscience and he was just very underwhelming all that said he had a pretty decent career at michigan but never lived up to the hype but he was a good solid starter but the key to this team were their veterans they had roy tarpley who had a very troubled life but boy at his best roy tarpley could play at center um, they had some out-of-state guys they had gotten, Richard Relford, Butch Wade, who were good, strong, physical forwards. And they had a young guard from Ohio named Gary Grant, who was truly a great player. And they had some other guys that they mixed in. They had a guy, Guard Thompson from East Grand Rapids, who was a great shooter. Um, just a lot of depth, a lot of experience by this point, a lot of juniors and seniors in that lineup. And they were the, they ended up winning the Big Ten. Um, and as you said, coming into this game, they were ranked number five. They're coming into Jenison, MSU struggling at two and four, not a lot of reason for optimism. And then the game tips off and Scott Skiles goes nuclear. And that's the key, right? I mean, so Scott Skiles was the, was a linchpin that season. And would you say that's kind of his coming out game? Yes. Where yes. Sort of launched him in the, for the rest of the big 10, because yes. he went crazy. He scored 40 points. Yeah. <laughs> right and um 
uh, I mean, he beat Michigan. I mean, the, I, I, rec- I think this may be a game I watched, but he definitely was a he was a talker during the games, and, yeah. and that he fed off that negative energy, right? I mean, he he was the one player I remember. The last thing you'd want to do is really start talking to him because he would play better. Like the more you talk, the better he'd get throughout the game, and he would go and he'd needle guys all the time. You could see him, you know, barking the whole time as he's bringing the ball up the court. I I think that and if the, someone talked back, that was that was a death knell for the, them. The best. In my mind, the best description of what Scott Skiles was is he was a shrunken down Larry Bird. And I'm not making that comparison just because they both happen to be Caucasian and can shoot. Um, It truly was the, the thing that you just talked about. Scott Skiles was absolutely fueled by people talking to him. And that didn't just mean even players. Again, I, I mentioned that legal trouble background. I have never to this day seen a player who went through what Scott Skiles went through that season in opposing arenas in the big 10 opposing fans wanted him crucified. They wanted to kill this guy. And every time he went to an opposing arena, the crowd was focused on him in a way that boy, very, very few players come close. Christian Leitner, got into that realm. Um, Occasionally you'll see a guy just kind of burst across the sky, like a comet for a certain season. There was a kid a few years ago, Marshall Henderson at Ole Miss, who really was hated by people. Um, You see it, uh, Grayson Allen at Duke, but see, that's the thing. Grayson Allen and Christian Leitner were cheap shot guys. That's why they were hated. Scott Skiles didn't cheap shot anybody. Scott Skiles just kicked your ass. And told you he kicked your ass. That's why he was hated. Right. That and the legal trouble yeah. got trumped up. So it absolutely was the case in that first game, which was at Jenison, not on the road. But Skiles was running his mouth the entire game. And Michigan State, from about the five or six minute mark in, really was firmly in control, ends up winning it by, I think, 12. And um, Skiles drops 40 on them. And that sent a message, and it also served to be the launching pad for the rest of the season for Michigan State. It was a huge win in every respect. Right, and then from there they go nine and two in the league, and, and with another victory at Michigan, uh, they go into. And Skyle supposedly told Jobert that you better lose twenty pounds, <laughs> fat boy, before you want to try to guard me. Uh, uh, you missed the the punchline to that. You better lose 20 pounds before you try to guard me, fat boy. That's what he said to Gilbert at the tip. Um, This is one, in my mind, this is one of the most legendary games in program history. Because to set it up, Gilbert liked to run his mouth too. And Gilbert, Michigan was having a great season. They would end up winning the Big Ten. So no disrespect to what they were as a team. They were really good. But Gilbert did not like the fact that Skiles had gotten the better of him and his team in that first game. So he got into the media leading up to the rematch in Chrysler, talking about how it was all going to be different in Ann Arbor. So Skiles heard all this. And again, then he's got that Michigan crowd, such as it is. They don't really have basketball crowds down there, a smattering of people. But anyway, <laughs> um, they, uh, they were out for blood. So at the tip, and this has been told and retold by so many people that it, it sounds apocryphal, 
But if you know what Scott Skiles was like, you know that it was true. He leans over to Jobert just before the tip and says what we just quoted. You better lose 20 pounds before you try to guard me, fat boy. And the game goes on from there. And Michigan State, again, is rolling. And they win this one by 15. And Skiles said, what did he have? I had it out of the notes. 33 30, points, yeah. 33 yeah. points. Okay, Daryl Johnson in a big game. But during the game, apparently, and I had never heard this bit until doing the research for this episode. I'd never heard this part, but I love it. Apparently, at some point during the game in the second half, they're at the free throw line, and Skiles is next to guard Thompson. And he supposedly leans to, over to guard Thompson and says, hey, guard, why don't you fuck up so they can bring Fat Boy back in? <laughs> that's that's who Scott Skiles was. Just unbelievable. And again, it's it, yeah, the guy's running his mouth, but he's dropping 33 on you. He's backing every single bit of it up. And that's why I say the best comparison for him to me was a guy like Larry Bird, who also did that. Larry Bird is supposedly the single greatest trash talker in NBA history. But he backed up every single... I mean, that guy did things like he'd tell a team he was deciding to shoot with his offhand that game, the whole game, because he wanted to save, and he'd still go out and drop 30 on you. You know, he would do stuff like that. That was very much the kind of player Skiles was, too. Skiles had, that year, as much bravado and fire in him as any player I've ever seen. It was just, it was incredible to watch. And, and that's what makes you hate it, right? If you can, if you are, if you rub people's faces in your, in your success yep. in sports and they, they want to see you fail, they want to see, and they do everything they can to try and stop you. And, you know, unfortunately for them, that actually made him better. <laughs> it gave, if, like you said, it fueled Absolutely. him, right? And so, he, so you, you don't know, know what people, to do with those guys. People talk about that. Oh, this guy uses you know, hate is fuel, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes it's true. Some guys wilt under it. Some guys really do use it to make themselves better, but nobody's done it any better than Scott Skiles as a senior. He just, he was um, the most pugnacious player I think I've ever seen. Just, just a, a little ball of fury on the court, a six-one unathletic guy, doesn't have any physical edge over anybody he's facing pretty much. And yet he is just going out there and destroying you. So as you said, that, that first Michigan game was really the launch pad for the rest of the season. So they finish up nine and two. They're 12 and six overall in the league at that point. They finished third, which is the highest finish they'd had since the national championship year. So this is all a big deal, and they're going back to the NCAA tournament. Again, this is an era, no Big Ten tournament, so we don't have that. Um, they finished behind only Michigan and Indiana in the league. And, you know, you're going into the NCAA tournament feeling some level of optimism, one, because of how they finished, but two, because they've got the guy who at that point, to me, is the best player in the country, bar none. I mean, you look at the numbers, and, and you have them down there. I, I think I've got this right. Correct me if I get any of it wrong. 27.7 points a game? or 27.4. Yep. 27.4 mm -hmm. points a game. No three-point shot. And trust me, if you saw Scott Skiles play, if the three had been in, oh, yeah, add no about four a night to that. He would have been a 30-point-plus sure. guy. Um, Six-point 
eight assists per game, I think. Six and a half and 4.4 rebounds per game and shooting 55%. Four and a half rebounds per game for a guy who's 6'1 and can't really run and definitely can't jump. How did he do that? I have no idea. But he thought the game at a different level. The, the number that blows my mind, though, 56% from the floor. Yeah. That is an insane number in any era for a guard to shoot. And, and again, the game was different. We do have to understand that. Um, without the three, very played very, very differently. But Scott Skiles, trust me, even in that game, was primarily a jump shooter. So to shoot yes. that kind of percentage is crazy. And this team is the best shooting team Michigan State's ever had. They they shot, I think, did they shoot 56% as a team? Yeah, 56 from for, for the as a team. Yeah. And then just uh, under 80% from the line as a yeah. team. 79.9% from the line. This was how Michigan State won. They were a, a very undersized team for the day. Barry Fordham was the center. He was maybe 6'9", not a bruiser. Larry Pollock is your power forward. And trust me, this was not a stretch four era, but he's the guy Michigan State had. Then you got a trio of guards in Skiles, Daryl Johnson, who went about 6'2", and Vernon Carr, who was the one athlete with he was six six and vernon carr was athletic he could jump he could do some things uh but this was a very undersized team they didn't really play size off the bench carlton valentine was a key reserve who was a six six kind of bruiser but undersized um ralph walker who was a string bean at six eight um and then they played a freshman guard who will come back to named mark brown who was, I believe, the all-time leading scorer in Michigan high school basketball history at the time from Hastings. Um, and that was it. That was their rotation. Four, uh, the five starters all played more than 28 minutes a game. Yet, despite that, what made this Michigan State team so good, besides the shooting in general, was they ran. They were a great transition team. Again, led by Skiles. Not the fastest guy in the world, but man, did he run that break. And and it made Michigan State a truly lethal team offensively. And in my mind, the, the only team that I've seen in MSU that got close was that 2015-16 team with Denzel Valentine, Bryn Forbes, and those guys yeah. uh, in terms of just pure entertainment value. This was a, besides the winning, this was a, a tremendous team to watch. They were so much fun because of the way they played. They even managed to out-rebound opponents by two and change a game somehow. I don't know how they did that because they had no size. Pollock led the team in rebounding at like 5.7 a game. They were not big, and this was an era when, you know, dinosaurs roamed the earth and, <laughs> and seven-footers were all around the Big Ten. And somehow – Michigan State did the job, but it was offense that keyed this team's success. And this is an era without the shot clock still. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. Correct. So, and I think it's, I think that's important to look at a couple things. One is there's no three point line. The other is no shot clock. And so the game is obviously different, but you're, you're probably, you know, if you have a three point line, probably your shooting percentage is a little bit lower because people are going to be yes. taking longer shots. Right. So, but also I think the fact that 
you have a team that's plays fast in an era where there's no shot clock, where there's probably an advantage to playing slower in many ways. Uh, it was, it's a sort of probably a different style than most people are playing. Also, if you're unathletic or a team that has lack size, playing fast, taking quick shots before defense gets set, obviously puts it to, gives you an opportunity to shoot better. And I'm sure that was Judd's, Judd's strategy, right? You see that from Michigan State all the time where we get fast break points that don't actually count as fast break points, but we, by all intents and purposes, you know, they are because the defense has a chance to set and you're in position yep. deep in the block or something. And right. And so you definitely see the, the game. It was, I mean, I, in some ways you almost say that Judd's innovative in his way approach. Oh, without question. Look, Judd, Judd Heathcote, I'm a big Judd Heathcote guy. Uh, um, you know, he's the, obviously Tom Izzo has eclipsed everything Judd did, you know, five times over, but, Judd Heathcote was well understood to be an innovator and a strategic genius as a basketball coach. I can say this about Judd. I think Judd, with only a couple of exceptions, generally got about as much out of his teams as there was to get. People can criticize him for some of the recruiting. I, I, criticize, I would criticize him for a bit of it, but certainly not all of it. Because uh, the only real answer was, was he willing to cheat or not? That that's what it was, um, right. and he wasn't. But as a, as a um, as a tactician, he was a genius, and he's his teams over the years played different styles in order to find ways to be competitive. You know, the the Magic teams were known for the matchup zone which was really an innovation. Judd didn't invent it, but he kind of perfected it with that Michigan State team. This era, yeah, he did exactly what you said. Okay, we don't have much size. We probably can't win a slug it out half-court game, so we're not going to play that way. We're going to run, run, run. We're going to look to make the game fast and use that as an advantage because I think we can shoot. I think we can outscore people, and that's exactly what they did. And then – Let's talk about the NCAA tournament because so Michigan State makes the tournament two years in a row, and it's so funny because I'm mean, back at the time that was a big deal, like making the Ew. tournament two years in a row, Ew. right? Yeah. <laughs> now we're ah, in the tournament again, you know, it's eh, twenty five years in a row, <laughs> right? Uh, but anyway, so they faced Washington the first round. Uh, Washington was led by uh, NBA center Christian Welp. Uh, they really pushed Michigan State, and I, was this a? I'm, I don't even rem- remember what the seating was. Um, but Michigan anyway, State they was the favorite, Michigan right? State they were the favorite, the, but it was like a seven ten, or it wasn't maybe not a seven ten, but it was like a five twelve or something, or six eleven. Maybe it's a six eleven. Yeah, I, I, you know, I tried to find, I, and I, I, I is it funny how you can't find some of that there, stuff in the way back? There and, <laughs> no, it was there, and I didn't, I didn't pull it. I think it might have been like a like a five twelve or um, a six eleven type game. Washington was a good team. And, and Christian Velt was a good player. He was actually, he was um, the, a German import at a time where there wasn't a lot of that going on and was a really good center. He was a seven-footer. Um, but this was a game where Washington was in control in the fir- at halftime. I think, I think they were up 10. Yeah, they were 10 and, at halftime. Yeah, and Michigan State came storming back, led by Skiles and Johnson and Carr, who were that triumvirate that were so tough. And they end up overcoming that lead, pull away, managed to just barely get over the hump, 72-70. And, um, 
And that leads to a second round matchup with maybe <laughs> the most, fe- I'm not going to say maybe, definitely the most feared program of the era. This was John Thompson's Georgetown. Yep. And it was the year after Patrick Ewing had left. So they weren't quite what they had been, but boy, they still had a lot of guys who could play. And they had that aura. For, for those who are too young to remember it, Georgetown of the 80s, was kind of a precursor in a way to what the bad boy Pistons became in the NBA. They not only beat you, they, they beat you up. They were very physical and, and played with an edge and yet were really talented too and smart teams. And then on top of all that, there was an aura around them because John Thompson really didn't make his players particularly available to the media. Like I don't remember if I ever heard Patrick Ewing say a word while he was in college. They, they used to call it Hoya paranoia um, <laughs> because Thompson was so hands-on in how his program operated, but it all, it all gave them this aura. So that's who Michigan state is going against. And they're an underdog. They're like a three and a half point underdog going into this game. And um, Georgetown, again, has some success early, but Michigan State kind of puts the hammer down in the second half. And I forget what the final score was, but they won comfortably. Yeah, it was 80 68. And actually, I was just looking up. So Michigan State was a five seed because, of course, they have okay. to play Kansas, the number one seed in the, in the right. Sweet 16. Right. Georgetown was the four. And and I felt like that this Michigan State team, what I recall, it, it very often they had a group, big surges in the second half, and I think in some ways that was uh, that was a sort of Skiles kind of feeling out the team, and that once he figured out how to sort of beat you, he would yeah. he, he kind of figured out what your what your defense was set, and then he would just find a way to exploit that. And I don't know, maybe that's just no. I uh, think there's I think there's I think something that, to that, or he just right he found the game consistently, and and in the second half. It was it was going to be his game because he he did think the game at a level. That's the thing. It wasn't just purely rage that fueled Scott Skiles. It seemed <laughs> that way at times. Scott Skiles thought there's another area of comparison to Bird. Scott Skiles thought the game at another level from other guys. He had to because he didn't have any physical gifts really to rely on. He was a very skilled player, but beyond that, physically. At the Big Ten level, he he didn't have an edge over anybody, so he had to think the game differently, and and I think that does end up impacting things the further along in a game you go. Uh, the the one other highlight from this one that I would draw people's attention to, and you can find this one on YouTube. I encourage you if you've never seen it to see it uh, to take a look. Um, I think it's maybe the most iconic play in MSU basketball. Well, it's up there. Magic's got a few too, and so does Cleves. But uh, and and Cassius Winston against Duke. But uh, Scott Skiles in transition against Georgetown goes no look around the world behind the back in transition to Larry Pollock for a dunk that really just was the punctuation point in that game. It is one of the greatest plays you will ever see. Just insane. And, and if I, I haven't viewed it for a while, if I remember right, unfortunately, like most of the video you can find from this era, the quality is not great, but it's good it enough is, that yeah. you can see what's happening. That's what Scott Skiles was. He was a, a showman. 
this was a guy who, again, for, for a, a kid who couldn't jump, couldn't really run, found ways to do the spectacular all the time. And that play against Georgetown was, was a, an epitome of this. And, and again, I, I probably have trouble for those who weren't around fully getting across how monumental this game seemed because Georgetown was a monster. I think they went to three final fours in Ewing's four seasons and won one of them. So they're just coming off that era. They were like the power and a team you were frightened of too. (laughs) Physically, you were frightened of what they were going to do to your team. And, And it's also an era too, it's worth mentioning, where there wasn't nearly the level of um, of uh, national non-conference matchups going on all the time. We mentioned at the outset, MSU really didn't have any big-time wins in the non-conference because they didn't really play anybody who was great. You know, Iowa State was an NCAA tournament team. They lost that game on the road by two, but that was really it. Um, so the reason I'm mentioning this is, you know, now we take it for granted, and, and God help us, if you've seen the schedule that Michigan State's going to play in the non-conference next season, you know what I'm talking about. But it's it's par for the course. We're used to seeing all the heavyweights playing each other because that's the way the game has evolved. In the 80s, you did see some of that, but not nearly as much. And so yeah. you uh, Georgetown, yeah, you saw them on TV, but they were kind of like a legend in a way that it's not possible to have now because you, Michigan State just didn't play them. Big Ten teams weren't playing them with any regularity. So they were this kind of other thing that you knew about. You knew what they did. You knew how good they were. You knew how scary they were. But you didn't you didn't see them, quote-unquote, in the flesh very often. And so for Michigan, for Michigan State to beat them was huge. I think that's important to point out, too. And and again, you know, I talk to my kids, it's it's really hard for them to grasp how access to TV and video highlights and things like that were just, you know, they just, they were sparse. You didn't have an opportunity to watch. You could easily go a whole season and not see Georgetown until you see, face them in person or in the NCAA tournament. And that wasn't unusual. They didn't think that was weird. It's just, you just never, you just hear about these teams. You'd see what they were doing in their non-conference. You wouldn't right. have any way of evaluating them. And that was, you know, early on, even with Izzo. And this is even like late 90s or 2000s when he'd have a pretty extensive video team keeping track of videotaping every game they could possibly get a yep. hold of because it was just hard to, to get video access of teams, especially obscure teams. Now, of course, it's totally different. You can watch every game on, you know, uh, yep. on TV, not it, any just, team. It's crazy. It's a very it's a very different time. Well, you said it at the outset. Not every Michigan State game wasn't televised. I don't think most you of them were. Yeah. Yeah. You, you could, by this, by this point, by the time we're getting to this stage in the mid-80s, it has started to expand a lot because ESPN has entered the fray. And ESPN is, and, and I've got a lot of criticisms of that network, but I, <laughs> I can absolutely say unequivocally, they are due a great deal of credit for expanding the reach and the popularity of college basketball as a sport because they are the ones who change the game in terms of television. Honest to God, believe this or not, you had, I think, only a couple of nationally televised college basketball games a week when Magic was playing. Yeah. I 
I can tell you his senior year, Michigan, or senior year, his sophomore year, his last year, Michigan State in the middle of the Big Ten season played kind of a made-for-TV game at Jenison against Kansas that was a massive deal. Michigan State blew them out. But um, it was a massive deal because it was on national TV. It was on NBC. Al McGuire and Billy Packer and Dick Enberg were in town. It was a huge deal. So you just you, you saw very little of these other teams back then. When Michigan State would go through the NCAA tournament run that year, the year they won it, they played Lamar, who was a small team, not a big deal that you didn't know much about them. But they played LSU. I had never seen LSU before that game. They were the SEC champs. I had never seen right. them play. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. You know, it, they played Penn in the final in the final four. The only team I had seen a lot of was Notre Dame because Notre Dame had a contract with NBC. It's why Notre Dame was the closest thing to a Duke of that time because they were on TV all the time in an era where nobody else was. So anyway, by this point, it's starting to change, but it's still to it's it's not nearly what it is now. You have these programs have this aura about them. Uh, because you didn't see him very much. Yeah, and I I feel like so. Well, let's talk about the game. I mean, they, so they match up in the they make it to the second weekend, the Sweet Sixteen date. They haven't you know been back to Sweet Sixteen since uh, Matt Johnson's That's, time. Right against number one Kansas. Um, it's played. It's a home game essentially. This is back when uh, number one seeds were basically uh, they would they could even play home games essentially in the first round. And so this is of course a, a Kemper Arena in Kansas City, which is. But an hour from Lawrence, um, yeah. high seated team loaded. They've got all kinds of, you know, they've got, um, Ron Kellogg, Greg Dreeling, uh, Calvin Thompson. And then of course the guy who is a former, uh, Maryland coach, Danny Manning, who's a six eleven, I mean, amazing college player sensation. Yeah. Um, let's, let's, let's stop there for a second. Uh, so, so Kansas has, they're kind of like Michigan was that they've got a, a big, experienced team. Greg Dryling was a monster. It's like seven feet, 270 pounds, um, would play for a long time in the NBA. Ron Kellogg was a very good wing. Uh, Calvin Thompson was another good wing. They had a, a very experienced team, a lot of seniors, talented, deep, experienced, big. But then on top of that, what they had that Michigan did not have is they had Danny Manning, who was in his sophomore season. Now, Danny Manning, spoiler alert, is going to win a national title as a senior with a team <laughs> that was not nearly as good as this one. That team was called Danny and the Miracles his senior year because it was him and a bunch of guys nobody really thought very much of. Um, but this season, Kansas was supposed to be right there for the national title. Danny Manning was seen as a revolutionary basketball player. And he never quite made good on that in the NBA. He was a good NBA player for a long time, never a great one. He was supposed to be, and this was, an, this was a period that had a lot of this, to be fair, but he was supposed to be an era-defining guy because he was 6'10", but tremendously skilled. And a good athlete, all that. He had some injury problems as part of the reason why he never quite made good on all his promise. But Danny Manning, at this point in his career, is hyped. He is a guy viewed very much in the same way that guys like Ralph Sampson or um, 
or Patrick Ewing were, where they were supposed to be kind of era-defining players. The funny part is the guy who actually ended up being an era-defining player wasn't quite viewed that way when he was in college, and that's Michael Jordan. I mean, people thought Jordan was great, but you know, Jordan was the third pick in the draft. So anyway, right. I, I digress. The other interesting thing about this, um, this is Larry Brown's Kansas. Larry Brown's coaching them. And Larry Brown gets Danny Manning out of North Carolina in large part, so they say, because he hires Danny's dad, Ed Manning, as an assistant coach. Um, so the shenanigans at Kansas are not just a Bill Self thing. They go way back. Now, to be fair to Larry Brown and Ed Manning, Ed, the story was always, yeah, Ed Manning was driving a truck before Larry Brown hired him as a coach as evidence of, of how shitty it was, what a, what, a, what a cheating move it was. And that's true. He was driving a truck. But Ed Manning had played in the ABA. So Ed Manning wasn't a bum off the street. He actually knew the game. Would he have been hired had he not had this era-defining kid as a son? Probably not. But it was it was not quite as ludicrous as people tried to make it out to be. Um, but Danny Manning is the guy. And if you're Michigan state, you're looking at this saying, okay, they've got the seven foot monster at center. And then they've got Danny Manning. Meanwhile, we're rolling out Barry Fordham and Larry Pollock, the five <laughs> yeah. and the four. It looks tough. And so then let's talk about the game. I, I think, you know, the game in some ways, it's just like it was for most of the season that, they uh, have trouble starting. Uh, Kansas gets out to a nine-point halftime lead, but it's just where Michigan State wants it, right? It's just where Skiles wants them to have a, a deficit going into the second half. And then, you know, Skiles turns into himself and come roaring back and have a half, have a lead in the second half, four points, with 221 to play. And I actually had to watch this on YouTube again because I, I – and this is the thing. I don't even remember if this game was – I feel like it wasn't on television for where I was. And, it was. And I think that's – but I, I didn't have cable okay. growing up. And so I don't know. Was it on ESPN? I'm not even it, sure. It I don't th- might I, well have been because ESPN definitely in this era had the first two rounds and it might have even extended to the Sweet 16. I don't recall. I, I'm not sure. And I, I wonder if that's why gotten, I didn't see it. CBS had gotten the contract by this point, but you there definitely was part of the tournament that ESPN had because that's really one of the things that made Dick Vitale. Yeah, Rick right. Vitale yeah. was at the center of the circus of, you know, and, and really had a lot to do with, you know, you, you can say that March Madness, as we know it, really, the, the starting point is Magic and Bird. But then what the follow through is ESPN having those early round games and Vital serving as uh, the ringmaster, although you could also argue he was also simultaneously the clown. Um, but but uh i i i I don't really mean i mean i think dick vital for that role he played was really important in college basketball history i really do believe that but yeah it's possible that it was on espn i honestly don't recall yeah and i i remember that the first two rounds you'd watch it to slight digression is that you would there was actually one feed and so you'd have to watch the espn tournament and you've been watching ESPN and they just jump from game to game. It was almost like watching uh, the red zone. I think on, on the, the NFL. Around. absolutely right. And yeah. so, and so you wouldn't even have, and then at some point they had a regional um, 
markets. And so if you were in that region, you got to see your team the whole game. But yep. even then, if you get, if your team's up 10 or 12 or something with say six minutes left, they still cut away from your game and just go yes. to something else. Yeah. And, uh, and that, of course now, you know, if you have different options and stuff, but, um, so I've, I've, I feel like I, I listened to that game. I thought I couldn't watch it. It's possible it was too late at night and maybe I was in bed. I don't know. It it's was funny a night, your memory my, my recollection. Of, it was a night, it was a late night game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so uh, Mishisek comes back and is up four with 221, and this is when the clock breaks <laughs> in Kansas, at Kansas, you know, in Kemper Arena. Um, and of course, there's no shot clock at this time, and this clock stops for 15 seconds. There's, of course, if you want to watch the video, Jud Judd goes over and pounds the scoring table Quick in frustration. This. Supposedly, the guy who sees that the clock has stopped, who notices it, is none other than Tom Izzo, who was in his early days on the MSU staff at this point. So he tells Judd. Judd sees it, and as you say, goes over to the scorer's table to get their attention and ends up pounding his fist on the table. And finally, they get to it. But not until about 15 seconds of play have elapsed without the clock running. So Kansas down four, and in an era with no shot clock, gets 15 yeah. free seconds. Um, they don't make an adjustment. That's the amazing thing. If you think about it, if that happened now, of course, it would get fixed. It would get adjusted. They'd go back. They'd have replay. They'd figure it out. None of that happens. This The time was allowed to elapse. Can The game is being played, and the clock is not moving. So Kansas is getting extra time. That's the point. Right. In a time when they needed all the time they could get. Absolutely. Especially, especially, right. And especially with no shot clock, you can yeah. run out the clock. I mean, and, it's, and it's hard, State, but you could do it. Let's let's also remember Michigan State, 79.9% free throw shooting team. So if you're right. going to follow them to stop the clock, you're dealing with that. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, at this point, you feel pretty good if you're Michigan State. I mean, a, a lead at this time is... Yeah, they're, and obviously playing well in the second half. Miss some free throws down the end, which is you know, unusual. Uh, obviously, high pressure game, right, to, to beat Kansas. And uh, and Kansas ends up tying with nine seconds left. It goes to overtime. And Michigan State sort of was, I don't know, the tank was empty. And they just end up, the score does not reflect what the game was. And they lose by 10. Um, and so what would have happened if that clock had not been broken? Or whatever the problem was. Yeah. Well, well, let's look. I mean, you can, and this isn't entirely fair, but but you can do kind of a deductive thing and say, okay, Kansas got 15 extra seconds. They tied the game on a tip-in with nine seconds left. They don't have that time, right? right. The clock doesn't stop. Now, is that how it would have unfolded? Probably not, because – there's things would have unfolded differently. It's also fair to note that down the stretch, Michigan State missed the front end of two one and ones, one by Larry Pollock, who's a very good free throw shooter, and one by Mark Brown, who was an outstanding shooter. I saw Mark Brown play in high school, and I mentioned a while ago, he was, I think at that time, the all-time leading scorer in Michigan high school basketball history from Hastings. Mark Brown was a sensational shooter. It was beyond fluky it would be like foster lawyer missing a free throw that's a good way of putting it in the modern context 
Um, and it just crushed him. He ended up transferring after that. It wasn't just because of the missed free throw, but I think that was the final blow to his MSU career. And he ended up having a very good finish to his career at Western. Um, but he never really got back on track. At, well, that was the end of the line, I guess, at Michigan State was missing that free throw. But those were big missed shots. Styles also missed a free throw in the later stages of the game, which he was, you know, publicly kicked himself for. So Michigan, my point being Michigan state had plenty of chances to do get this done, even with the clock situation, but we hadn't seen anything like this where a clock stops for a long period of time. Nobody does a damn thing to try to rectify it. And, you know, it's suspicious because it's, essentially on home turf it was the missouri side of the kansas city line but still it's kansas territory right and um and they end up finding a way to win the game i I think if if you if you see michigan state having found a way to win then it becomes interesting what would have unfolded next so in the elite eight for the regional title they had nc state there and nc state at this point is a couple years removed from their miracle national title. Um, but they're a good team. They've got Nate McMillan, who our younger listeners probably recognize more as an NBA coach. Nate McMillan was a very good college basketball player. He was a 6'5 point guard. They had a couple of huge guys inside named Charles Shackelford and Chris Washburn. Chris Washburn in particular a very tragic figure, a guy with huge, huge talent, just an ultra-hyped high school player who had pretty serious drug problems and got into the NBA but had trouble staying there. But at this point, you know, is is a very, very effective college player. He was kind of like a mini Shaq physically, just huge. Um, but NC State, I, NC State was not a great team that year. And Kansas ended up handling them by seven in the regional final. And and I just suspect that Michigan State, with their running game, their perimeter guys, would have given NC State a lot of problems. And and I suspect that Michigan State could have beaten NC State to get to a final four. And and again, so much of this discussion from here, the what-if part of it, is going to be predicated on how much faith you put in the idea that Scott Skiles could not be denied. And having witnessed it, I put a lot of faith in that because yeah, right. he just he willed that team to win in ways that you very rarely see. So I think they get by NC State. That would have put them in the Final Four. And in the Final Four, they would have been matched against Coach K's first great Duke team. So Duke is in the final four for the first time, I believe, since 78 when they got to the national title game and were beaten by Al McGuire's Marquette. Um, I'm sorry. They were beaten by Kentucky. They were beaten by Kentucky, Joe B. Hall's Kentucky team. Um, But it had been a few years since they'd been to the final four, and they'd gone through their own years in the wilderness. Coach K's early run was not very good, but – he had built this thing up. And so by this point, he had Johnny Dawkins, who was seen as one of the best players in the country. He had Tommy Amaker. He had a broadcaster most listeners know, Jay Billis, who was a great college player as a 6'10 forward slash center. Um, 
I honestly, that Duke team was very, very good. They beat Kansas. Yeah. I have a hard time imagining MSU beating them, but they would have had a shot again because, because of Skiles. Um, but that Duke team was very, very good. And then in the finals, the team that ends up beating Duke to win it all was Louisville, who had a team of veterans surrounding a freshman uh, named Never Nervous Purvis Ellison, who <laughs> had a tremendous NCAA tournament. I mean, sensational. And that Louisville team was another breed apart. I mean, they were just loaded. Um, again, a lot of experience, a truly transcendent freshman in the middle. Um Hard to imagine Michigan State beating them either. Uh, but again, it, it comes to where you land on this comes down to what you think of Skiles just as a force of nature. And it's possible. I, I wouldn't have ruled out Michigan State against any of those teams. I, I think the latter two, I would probably have been inclined to pick the opponent rather than MSU. But man. Scott Skiles at his best, and God knows if they had gotten to the final four and people had talked about Michigan state the wrong way had maybe said <laughs> things like, you know, well, yeah. it's kind of been a miracle run, but you know, it ends now or any of that kind of talk or just hyping the other teams. And Scott Skiles might've gone out and dropped 60 on somebody. I mean, he was <laughs> capable of doing that kind of thing that year. It was nuts. So it's, it's definitely – there's two games that I think stand out in Michigan State basketball history, unfortunately for Judd, because both came in his era, around these kind of officials' mistakes. It's this yeah. one and then a Sweet 16 game four years later with the oh. Steve Smith 1990 team against Georgia Tech, which was a combination of a clock error and giving a three-pointer – where a two-pointer only should have been awarded um, that did MSU in in that game. Uh, but this was – it was really, really hard to take because MSU had – I've never seen a Michigan State team max out its potential the way this one did. I mean, they were so entertaining to watch. They, they played so hard. They had this, this charismatic, if you were a Michigan State fan, figure at the center in Skiles – and they were just beating teams that you thought they had no business beating. Yeah. Um, that's a pretty entertaining mix to follow as a fan. And it would have been nice to see them get to a final four. Absolutely. And of course, you know, history changes with those things. And uh, it would, that's why we kind of play this fun game with what if, what would have happened. It's also, you know, interesting to think what would have, what would have Skyle's career been had there been a three point line? I mean, obviously yes. we think there would have been a lot more points, Shooting percentage probably wouldn't have been as high, but he probably would have been, um, I mean, he would have been much more prolific scorer than he even was. Yeah, I, I, I think safely that year, safely, you can assume with a three-point line, uh, he would have eclipsed 30 points a game for his average. Sure. I, I do believe that. Anybody who watched him, I think, would feel the same way uh, because he just took so many shots. What you know, There's not a ton of clips out there, but there are some on YouTube. Watch, I advise this to our listeners, there's some stuff from the first Michigan game, the one at Jenison, and watch how Skiles plays. It's It looks very similar to what you see now in that 
he'll come Michigan scores. There's one play early in the game. I watched the clip yesterday. So I, that's why it's fresh in my memory. <laughs> Michigan scores MSU inbounds. They come up the court fast, kind of the way they do now. And Skiles pulls up from like 20 feet. No, they don't move the ball around. Skiles just comes down, goes up from 20 bang. It's the kind of thing you see now where teams on the fast break, you know, in transition are actually playing for threes as much or more than they are to get layups, right? right. That's how this team played. So the, the absolutely with a three line, they would have been even more oriented that way. And Skiles in particular, as well as Daryl Johnson and Vernon Carr, who could also shoot, um, would have benefited. I think this yeah, team absolutely. would have been even better with a three point yeah. line. And uh, yeah, and with the analytics, you would absolutely you would say what they were doing is the wrong thing, right? Yeah, you pull up for twenty two footers for <laughs> in transition, but but, it, but right, that was effective, right? That works. The right thing for their what they had in terms of skill sets and personnel, they had to play that way. If they played a more conventional, grinded out half court game, this team does not win the way they did. They just weren't built for that, so they had sure. to do something different. Absolutely. And it's sort of like using sabermetrics, which are super effective. But, you know, if you have a team with like, you know, Babe Ruth and you have all these big hitters, you don't want to be drawing a lot of walks, right? You you have, you have to you yeah. play the game with the, your personnel. Or, or, or if you have if you have like the 85 Cardinals, you don't want to play the modern walk or home run game because you got a team that of slap hitters that can run. Yeah. So right. play to your strength, you know? Yep. And, uh, and another footnote too, is all the free throws at that time were one-on-ones. And so, you know, you, it was, there's a lot more pressure you pulling up. There was no, the, there was no bonus, you know, there's no, uh, two shots after you get the 10 fouls so that that was sort of the, the counter to not having a shot clock. You just foul people and force them to one. Yeah. And again, know, that, and that is the point game. to, it's a fair point to bring up is that aside from the clock, Michigan state did have some opportunities at the line that a truly great, I think probably the best free throw shooting team of all time at MSU, a truly great free throw shooting team did not cash in on. And they had the right guys. It wasn't like Barry Fordham and Carlton Valentine were shooting those free throws. Skiles, Pollock, Mark Brown, they had guys you would rely on who didn't cash in. And that really did hurt. Yeah. And then the final footnote is, I was just looking up as we're, Talking there, Antoine Jobert did not go into law. He ended up, he's actually a coach right now. I don't know if you know that. I did. He, is he still at Oakland he's Oakland, Community College? Oakland Community College is where, yeah. at least that's what Wikipedia says. He's been says there a he long is, so time. He's been yeah, there. he's been there since 08, I think, it looks like. Yeah, I was going to say a decade or more. Yeah. Well, good for him. I mean, you know, look, Jobert is, I'm sure he's a nice guy. And um, and he was actually, if you look at his stats and you look at the fact that he was a four, I believe he was a four year starter on some pretty good teams. Yeah. Um, you know, he didn't have a bad career. It's just that he was so relentlessly hyped by the Detroit meet by the Detroit newspapers at the time in particular that. You know, if you're a Michigan State person and you see this and you see what the guy actually is. And then he goes to Michigan, so he's hyped even more, and he behaves the way he does. You know, he's cocky, ran his mouth. He's he's the easiest. He has to always, always, always be at the top of the chart of hateable Michigan players. I mean, 
I think even more so than the Fab Five guys, you know, Moritz Wagner, anybody you want to name, who, <laughs> uh, Dickinson, they've had a lot of them. You know, they've had a lot of jackasses. We know that. But Jobert just at that time was, I, I think, the, over the top in terms of hateability. And to have a guy like Skiles come in and just absolutely firmly put him in his place was delicious. It was just fantastic. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the discussion here. Another what if uh, we're going to have pretty co- soon, I think in a, about a, six weeks or so, we're going to start our uh, big 10 previews. We're going to have a couple more interviews, hopefully, and maybe another discussion or two, some recruiting updates. And, um, uh, at some point we're going to get a hire for replacement for Mike Garland. We'll talk about that when that occurs. Yeah. As well, yeah. at some, some point it's going to happen. Uh, Again, if you have not yet subscribed to the show, make sure you subscribe to your favorite podcast player. Also, please, right as soon as you're done listening to this, leave us a five-star written review. It helps promote the show and encourages, uh, makes it easier for people to find it on their searches. And until next time, the final four is not on the schedule. Go green. At Granger, we're for the ones who pay attention to every little detail. The ones who fuss, tinker, and sweat the small stuff. Because you know the tiniest thing can make the biggest difference when it comes to keeping business moving. We get it. We're the same way. Offering access to product experts to help you quickly and easily find what you need. So whatever your industry, you know you're always getting professional-grade products. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.